Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So last week was confirmation, and the week before that was Pentecost. But just before Pentecost, we concluded a series about heresy, where we talked about the things that we do not believe, not just in the United Methodist tradition, but also across Christianity. And we thought that it might be a nice parallel series or a complementary series to talk about what is it that we do believe. And so today we're going to start a series all about our doctrinal standards in the United Methodist Church, specifically the Articles of Religion. Now, in our beloved Book of Discipline, most people love it when a pastor brings one of these out, um, the Book of Discipline is, uh, it's actually an incredible trilogy. It includes our history, so there's historical documentation in here, including the genealogical lineage of all of our bishops going all the way back to Thomas Coke and Francis Asbury, who were ordained back in England by John Wesley to come and bring Methodism to the rebelling colonies. It also includes practical polity. How do you set up a new church? How do you run meetings? How do you get people to be trustees? All of those sorts of things are in there. But of course, there is our doctrine. What is it that we truly believe? And this has become more and more under scrutiny because in May, May 1st of 2022, the Global Methodist Church launched its denomination. Now, the only way for a denomination to be recognized is for global, uh, the global gathering of the Methodist Church, the general conference, to recognize it officially. And since we haven't had a general conference since 2016, something happened in 2020 that kept people from gathering from all over the globe, we will have one in 2024. So going all the way back to 1808, we have books of discipline. And our next one will, will be published in 2024, whether anything changes or not. It is always published after a general conference. But it's important to know that some things cannot be changed, not by the general conference, not by bishops, not by anybody. They are permanent to who we are. So in section three of the restrictive rules, paragraph 17, article one says this, the general conference shall not revoke, alter, or change our articles of religion, or establish any new standards or rules of doctrine contrary to the present existing and established standards of doctrine. So what we're gonna talk about over the next series are things that are not even up for discussion. They cannot be changed. And so they are our foundation. Now we can discuss a lot of things in the United Methodist Church, and we do, but that is not up for discussion, these articles of religion. And they come to us through John and Charles Wesley, who were ordained Anglican priests in the Church of England. They come from the Church of England, which had these articles of religion. And John and his brother Charles kind of paired out the ones that were specific to the monarchy in England and gave these to the American iteration of Methodism. And they have been in place since 1808 and they cannot be 
changed. Unlike our Constitution in the United States of America, which you can amend, and we have 27 times, you cannot amend or revoke these. And you can't delete them, you can't forget about them, they are crucial to who we are. They are our doctrinal standards. And so we're going to begin with the first one that says this, Article 1 of our Articles of Religion it is entitled, A Faith in the Holy Trinity. There is but one living and true God, everlasting without body or parts, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So our opening article of religion says that we are Trinitarians. We believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We tend to use the word spirit because ghost now has different connotations. People start envisioning like the ghost of Christmas past kind of stuff. Or they start to envision you know, Casper the friendly ghost. Instead, we use spirit because that's a more faithful translation of the biblical Greek into English. But you're not in violation of anything if you say Holy Ghost, as we just did in the Gloria Patri. But we tend to be more consistent now and use spirit. It also meshes better with the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible to our Judaic siblings. And what happens is that repeatedly, prophets will have something to say, and there's the prophetic utterance, thus says the Lord. But prior to their prophetic utterance, there is generally a statement that says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's the Spirit of God. That would be the Holy Spirit. And so that's not a new thing. The Holy Spirit has been around, but it came to us in a new way on Pentecost. And Jesus is telling his apostles in chapter 14 of the Gospel account of John to expect this new movement and presence of the Holy Spirit. It's going to do something that it has never done before for all people. And that is as Jesus is preparing to be betrayed on this same night that he's talking to them, as he knows that this will be some of his final acts in earthly ministry. He wants them to know that they have not been abandoned or forsaken. He wants his apostles to know that God is never going to abandon them. Not God the Father and not he God the Son. That instead, the next revelation for them and their next experience will be the spirit of truth, the advocate. Some Bible translations say the comforter. The Holy Spirit will come to them. And Jesus says to them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Your fulfillment of what I have told you to do, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, your fulfillment of that reflects your love of me. And then Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to, you, to be with you forever. Forever. There's no breaking this relationship. There's no God leaving you and abandoning you. There's no wandering to a place that God cannot be with you. You will have the Holy Spirit with you forever. And this spirit of truth, the world cannot receive it. It's not just out in the world and anybody can grasp hold of it. The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, is not something that can be seen or simply known. It is something that is experienced. It is a relationship with our God. And this Holy Spirit is going to abide not only with you, but within you. And we experience this in baptism 
when we have the outward invisible tangible sign of the water being poured on those who are being baptized and the laying of hands and the invocation of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that yes, in fulfillment of what Jesus said, that those who choose to receive God in this way do, that the Holy Spirit comes and is inside you, is a part of who you are, loving you and perfecting you from within so that you may be a faithful servant to God on the outside. And all of this is a transition for the disciples. Because before this, only certain people at certain times received the Holy Spirit. But now Jesus is talking about that anyone who so desires can receive this peace of God's self. This is a whole new understanding. And we as modern day Trinitarians, we have this baseline to come back together and join with all Christianity which is pretty incredible because, as you know, there are not just one or two denominations in their overarching umbrella of Christianity. There are many divergences, many iterations. There are many. You have the Roman Catholic Church. You have all of our Orthodox siblings in Christ, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Byzantine Christians. You have multiple iterations of Lutheranism now. You have multiple iterations of the Presbyterian Church. And then there is a multiplicity of options within the umbrella of our Baptist siblings in Christ, just to name a few. There are a lot of different ways that Christianity is experienced, lived out, and identified in the world. But we all come back together on the Trinity. No matter how far we go and how deeply and profoundly we argue, we always come back to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And if you've ever had an opportunity to listen to different parts of our Christian family argue, then you are probably grateful to know that there is a place where we can come together and have common ground. Because it's not at the communion table, Absolutely not. We have our Catholic siblings in Christ who believe in transubstantiation. They talk about accidents and incidents in the elements, that there is the bread and the body in one, that there is the cup, the blood, and the wine in one, and that there's transformation that is happening, and that those things actually transform over into the literal body and blood of Christ. Then you have our Lutheran siblings who go, no, 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 we believe that there is still bread and still wine, but there is also the body and blood of Christ. And so already you can see that there is a lot of conflict around the table. There is also conflict around the baptismal font. We have people who say, that's not appropriate because you can't put a whole person in there. And there are others who say, God's grace is available through any application of water to anyone because God's grace is meant for us all, regardless of age and ability to profess. So again, we have all these places where we don't seem to be able to come together. So what a gift it is from God that it is God's revelation of God's self to which we come home. And if you've ever had a, a gathering, a family, or a, a group of friends that get together and suddenly the conversation starts to become really disagreeable, there's dissonance in there, you've got people who seem to be arguing under the auspices of debate, and you think to yourself, okay, this has been great, let's just call it a day, I love you, you're my family, we'll do this again in a little while. That is sometimes exactly what the Trinity allows us to do. 
It allows us to go, we don't agree on the sacraments. We don't agree on the role of the church. We don't even agree on what happens to us when we die. We may not even agree whether or not we have free will or not. But we all agree on the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's a beautiful gift. Because what God is saying is, I am not a one-and-done God. I am not a God who says to you, you have one chance to understand me, one chance to get to know me, and if you blow it, it's over. Our God has said, I have come to my people as God the Father. I have come to my people in Jesus Christ, God the Son, the incarnation. I have come to my people in the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. And even that doesn't begin to fully explain who I am to you. Because our brains are finite, but our God is infinite. And so we have to try to see what we can understand. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, because anybody who thinks they fully understand the Trinity very quickly starts to unravel when you try to explain it and try to detail it too much, right? That was that whole heresy of modalism. <laughs> you can go down a, a big dark hole of trying to give metaphor for the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father, and next thing you know, you are doing heretical things. Now, it's not gonna destroy the world, but it is going to impact how people understand this truly unique revelation of God's self in three distinct persons. And we as clergy, we own a bit of that problem for you because we want to help, we want to give examples, and then we say things like, the Trinity is like H2O. No, it is not like H2O. God is greater than molecules of water. God is bigger than that. We try to come up with things, other things like roles, which is classic modalism, right? Like think about how a person can be a parent and a child and, and also have a career. And you're like, no, that's modalism. Let's just stop there. Because sometimes we just need to marvel at the mystery of the Trinity. How is it that God the Father is not God the Son and is not God the Holy Spirit, but yet they are all three truly God? How is it that God the Son is not God the Father, is not God the Holy Spirit, but yet all three truly God? How is God the Holy Spirit not God the Father and not God the Son, but yet all three are truly God? Aren't you glad you don't have to go before the Board of Ordained Ministry and explain that? A lot of people wish they didn't have to do that. Here's one of the reasons why the United Methodist Church practically would never even think of touching the Trinity. Besides the fact that it is upheld in Scripture by the words of Jesus Christ, besides the fact that it has been confirmed over generations and generations in the tradition, the experience, and the reasoning of Christian community that far expands beyond any denomination, besides all of that, a lot of clergy have had a lot of schooling and a lot of running gauntlet and testing just to be where we are today, and we're not changing that. We have where we are. We're not gonna change that. In fact, if God chose to reveal God's self in a fourth person, according to our restrictive rules, you would have to disband United Methodism completely and have new articles of religion. You couldn't be like, well, according to the fourth person that God revealed God's self as, no, you can't do that. You cannot touch the doctrine of the Trinity. It is preserved, it is sanctified, and it cannot be touched or twisted or transformed. It is what it is, because we are Trinitarian Christians. 
And so we have this common anchor in Christianity, and that's pretty much the only one. But thank God we have it. Because the Trinity is about relationship. The Trinity is not only about God choosing to be in relationship with us, but God showing us the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. You'll notice that God the Son is here in the scripture today talking to the apostles about what God the Father is doing apart from God the Holy Spirit, apart from God the Son. There are clear descriptions within our canon of scripture that talk about how they engage with each other. The other place where you see very clearly that all three persons of the Trinity are coming together for our benefit is the baptism of Jesus Christ. There, Jesus is baptized as he sees fit by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon him and a voice from heaven, God the Father says, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And for anyone who was blessed enough to be there that day, they got to experience the Trinity live and in person. And we just get to read about that moment. So the Trinity is showing us that God believes in relationship so centrally to who God is, even larger and bigger than the three persons of the Trinity, the Godhead itself, that we are to mirror that in who we are. We were created in the image of God, which means we were created to be in relationship. We were created to be in relationship with God and one another. And if we're not in right relationship with God and we're not in right relationship with each other, then we are fundamentally failing to live up to the image in which we were created. And that's a hard thing to live up to because a righteous relationship is not easy. People don't always make it easy. Have you ever had somebody give you a backhanded compliment? You ever had that happen to you? Where it's like they're trying to be nice, but then you're like, wait a second. One time I had someone come up to me after church, not here, after church, and they said to me, you preach pretty well for a woman. Actually, what they said was you preach pretty good, but I grammatically corrected it. You preach pretty good for a woman. I'll see you after church. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Really? Of course not. That's not how we want to talk to each other. That's not how we should be. I appreciate you trying to give me a compliment, you know, for women. But at the same time, that's not going to help our relationship. That's not going to help us be better. That's not going to help us be more united. We have to focus on how our relationships can help us to truly be the best that we are, not only as individuals, but together. And that's what God is revealing in the, in the Trinity. That yes, God the Father is sufficient. Yes, God the Son is sufficient. Yes, God the Holy Spirit is sufficient in and of themselves. But together, it is so powerful and profound, which is why it is preserved forever in our doctrine. You can't touch it. You can't tweak it. You can't change it. And why would you want to? Because in a world where there are probably now pushing a hundred thousand different denominations in Christianity, shouldn't we have one place in God that we can come back together? Just one. Just one. And one might hope that it would be in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus only really quizzes his apostles one time. 
He's, he's a really great teacher. He does not spend a lot of time like, pop quiz, what does it say in Deuteronomy? He doesn't do that to them. But at one time, he eases into it, and he says to them, who do others say that I am? Who is it that they say that I am? And the apostles tell him the gossip. Well, some of them think that you're John the Baptist, which really makes no sense whatsoever. They were in the same place at the same time. They're clearly not the same person, but okay, fine. John the Baptist, moving on, uh, that's answer A. Answer B is Elijah, okay? Elijah is available to come back because Elijah didn't die, went up to heaven in, in a chariot of fire, so you've got some possibility there. And then I love answer C, which is the big catch-all, or just one of the prophets, you know, not gonna name any for you, but uh, you know, one of the prophets. You know, what if Jesus had been like, name me three prophets? But instead, he lets that go. Because it's not important, really, who other people are saying Jesus is. His real question, his real test to them is, who do you say that I am? And I'm sure some of them were sitting there and going, well, I'm pretty sure it's not John the Baptist. Uh, Elijah? You know, or maybe somebody tried to get a little smart and were like thinking, I'm going to name a different one. I'm going with Habakkuk. But instead, perhaps in the most incredible time, in a perfect answer, Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are Emmanuel, God with us, and you have come to save your people. That's a relationship when you come to save. Because you love. You are willing to do this. That someone else might be loved and set free. And in his answer, he reveals the essence of who God the Son is. I have come not to be worshipped and adored. I have come to save, to heal the sick, to liberate the prisoner, and to announce that the time had come when God would save God's people. To quote the prophet Isaiah. That's a whole different understanding of what is happening in Christianity. And within Christianity, within our family, we can get mired down in all the little details that we don't quite agree on. Do you have free will or don't you? What happens when you die? What happens? What does heaven look like? Are we going to heaven? Is heaven coming here? What's happening? We can't agree on any of these details, but at the end of the day, we can argue until we are literally blue in the face and still wake up the next morning united in the Trinity. And in a world of division and violence and hatred, that might be one of God's greatest gifts to us, that we can do that. Because you see, there are others who have opinions on Jesus. You can't even say that a Christian is just somebody who believes in Jesus. Oh, there are others who believe in Jesus. Muslims believe in Jesus. They just don't believe that he's divine. They believe that he is the Messiah and he is coming back, but he's not divine, not a Christian. It is the Trinity that makes us who we are. It is an understanding of the revelation of God that cannot exist without multiplicity and community. That the three persons of the Trinity are in proper and glorious communion with one another. The Son communicates through prayer with the Father. The Father announces to the world, this is my Son, the Beloved. The Holy Spirit comes to remind us of everything that the Son taught. And together, they give us our greatest hope of ever beginning to have even an iota of who our God is. Thank God for the Trinity. 
Because otherwise, we'd be trying to explain something, and we would be trying to picture or tell. And you know what? People don't do a good job when they try to create what God is on their own. If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, you'll see that we failed miserably in this. Imagine the Israelites. They've just come out of 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt. They've just come out. They are now liberated people. They gather at the foot of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, depending on where you're reading in the Old Testament, and there they are, and God says to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this will be the start of a brand new aspect of our relationship together. And then Moses goes to get the first 10 commandments and the people think, let us have something that encapsulates who our God is. Let us have something that we can look upon to be focused in our worship, to help us feel more connected with our God. And what did they choose to do to God? They made God a baby cow. That's what a golden calf is. It's a baby cow, not even a full-blown bull, a baby cow. And then we try to make it look pretty by putting gold on it. How insulting is it to God Almighty to say, our Lord is a piece of golden veal? That's not where we want to go with God. God is so much more than that. And so you can probably understand now while God is like, really, a golden calf? Seriously. I mean, look at Egypt. They had a lot cooler. Look at Hinduism. They have a lot more options. A baby cow. That's what you made me. A prey animal. Nice. Stay away from it entirely, says God. You know, this is why I told you, no graven images, because you're not very good at picking them. Don't do it. Instead, focus on the relationship. Focus on the deeper, more profound meaning of the Trinity. Focus on the fact that, yes, you can't fully understand it, and there has to be humility in that, that you can't claim to have all the answers. Because even as clergy, at the end of the day, this is what we know. But is it all? Of course not. God is bigger than that. And we try so hard to give you symbols, the three interlocking rings or the triangle. We try to give you something to look at, to try to give you something that you can grasp onto, and all of those fall woefully and pitifully short of God's glory. Because really, the Godhead is greater than those three rings interlocking. The Godhead isn't the triangle. The Godhead is the entire paper it is shown on. It is the banner upon which it hangs. It is the world on which those things exist. God is too big for that. And we try so hard to make God come down to our level, to be something that we can encapsulate, or something we can focus upon, and something that we can understand. But what we need to understand is we can never fully know God now. But as our call to worship said, one day we will see. We will see face to face. We will know fully. Right now, this is all a dim mirror. But the bigger point of the Trinity and the doctrine across Christianity is this, that God does not take our rejection as the final say. Because throughout history, throughout all of humanity, throughout Christianity, throughout our very lives here this day, we have at times rejected God. We have failed to be obedient 
to the commandments that Jesus called us to do. We have failed to walk faithfully with our Lord, and yet God doesn't reject us. God continues to reach out and care and concern. God continues to offer us grace day after day, month after month, year after year, trial after tribulation. God doesn't stop welcoming us back. And the Trinity is showing us that you have this giant opening into not only God's heart, but God's home. And that God is welcoming us back And if we start to look at the Trinity as that eternal promise, then perhaps we will find more ways not only to get along with our other siblings in Christ outside of Methodism, but with our siblings in Christ wherever we may be. Because God is always willing to use the Trinity to remind us, to teach us, to tell us, to show us that it really comes down to relationship. When this world passes away, when the book of Revelation is fulfilled and the sea is no more, what will last is the relationship that we have with God. All of this will perish, but that relationship is eternal. And it is so important to God that God wants us to be eternal, that in eternal life we might finally have the opportunity to see what it is that we have been yearning toward, we have been moving toward, we have been seeking and embracing grace to see. And it's not just for any individual person or just the remnant of the best. It is for all who long to have it. God the Son told us that. God the Holy Spirit reminded us. And God the Father has paved the way. So the next time you hear somebody talk about the mess that Christianity is, The next time you have somebody who's trying very hard to tell you what Christianity is all about or to encapsulate the Trinity for you, may you remember that really it's about relationship. That that is truly what Christ came, is to reconcile us to God and to one another. To give us an opportunity to grow beyond our individualistic selves. And to know a God who is bigger than any single individual of the Trinity. And that perhaps in that revelation, that epiphany, we'll have an opportunity to choose relationship over being self-righteous. We'll have the opportunity to say that God has chosen me even when I was wrong. Perhaps I can extend that grace to another. For I have been richly blessed to be forgiven and to be loved. And that is perhaps the truly transformative gift of the Trinity is that we have been given all that we need in scripture, tradition, experience, and in reason to know that our God is bigger than any idea we could have. But what is attainable and graspable is a relationship with that same God. And that is all God has ever wanted from us, a relationship built upon love and forgiveness and encapsulated in God's unmerited favor, that gift we call grace. May that be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.